It is great to see you this morning. Here comes the song again. I love that song. Joy in the house of the Lord. There are so many gifts that God has given to us. And in reality, the reason he's given them to us is so that we can give them back to him. And one of the greatest gifts I think God gave us is worship and the ability to sing, just music. He gave us that gift, and we know that we enjoy it, and, and it does something for us, but the whole purpose of it is to bring it right back to him. So this morning, if we were a radio station, we'd say, less talk, more music. <laughs> Today's going to be a lot of music, and so we want to encourage you when you can, when you want, to stand with us. If it gets to be too long, um, Hey, I did two weddings in the last couple weeks, and I had to stand through all of them. You can pull it off, okay? So let's go ahead and stand up and remember who we're singing to. God, here we are again, another Sunday, another opportunity to come before you and worship you. We thank you for that privilege that you give us, the voice that you give us, the ears that you give us, to not just belt out worship to you, but also to, to let it sink down deep, to let it change us, to let it move us. And God, the opportunity that you give us to be here this morning, I, I pray, wouldn't be something that we just repetitively come in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and, and feel refreshed and, and leave like the same people we walked in as. No, help us to grow. Help us to listen to the messages of the music, to listen to the word that you've given us in the Bible and help us to be transformed, to be more and more like Jesus each and every week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I got to say, before we even get started, uh, in a church our size, it is pretty incredible to have the worship team that we do. I mean, they are absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, give it up. Because they're not, they're not paid, you know, thousands of dollars, and we don't have light shows and smoke, and it's not like a, a concert on Friday night, but I think that's, that's part of what I love about what they do. They, they put in the time, they put in the effort, not just to put on a show so that we can enjoy some music, but you can see. I mean, I love, as much as I, I hate to say it, Ryan's going away to college on Thursday, so it's not, he, there's still more songs, and you can stay for second service, okay. Uh, <laughs> But I love the, watching the growth that he's had and, and how that's had an effect on the entire team because you can see it's not just music. It's not just songs that they're belting out for us, belting out for Jesus. And I, so I just hope that uh, as soon as I'm done, I'll try and keep it as short as I possibly can so we can get back to some more songs. But uh, just, just keep that in mind, that the, the, the purpose and the, the thing that they are doing up here is not just, they're not trying to get any attention on themselves. Um, through the leadership that we have up here, they're belting out for God. And I think that's just incredible, absolutely incredible, especially in a church that's, uh, that's our size. So last week we started a series called Through Thick and Thin, and it's all about friendships. We started by diving into the Word of God, and we wanted to answer the question, why do friendships matter? Why do they matter at all? Or do they matter? Do they matter to God? And we've, we came uh, to the conclusion by studying a couple different stories, that friendship does matter to God. A, because he designed us for it. B, because Jesus demonstrated it all throughout his life. And C, number three, Jesus ultimately died for it. He died for those relationships. So knowing that friendship matters is an important place to start before we can move on in the series. I'm going to do something that's very dangerous, okay? Because 
like my seventh and eighth graders, when I offer a question and say, turn and talk, I get one of two responses. It's either dead silence and I just stand there awkwardly, or people, they get so into it that it's hard to bring them back. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, but I have a question that I'd like you to ask not just the person that, came, that you came with this morning, actually turn to someone that might be sitting in the same row. And if you're a couple seats away, maybe scoot down for just this question, okay? I want you to think all the way back to when you were five, six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in that, in that range of your life. And for those of you who that was a long time ago, maybe go to 10 or 11, okay? I mean, just, you were a child, Okay? The world is huge. Every room you walk into is like the biggest room ever. I want you to think about the biggest fears that you had, but I don't want you to tell any stories surrounding it, okay? I know that's really tough for some of us. Uh, I just want you to try and describe your biggest fears as a child in like three to five words, but I want you to tell the people around you. So you can start with your spouse or your friend or whoever you're sitting next to, but then be a little daring and turn out to the people who are sitting in your row, okay? Exactly 30 seconds. Ready? Go. All right, let's bring it back in three, two, one. Excellent. Thank you. I apologize to those of you watching online. I'm sure it was great watching me just try and listen to the front row. That's terrible YouTubing. But hey, I'm, I'm no YouTuber. So uh, I hope that if you just discussed with your family that that was all good, but I hope you got to talk to someone new this morning about that question. And I'm going to share mine because growing up, uh, I was a fearful little child. I don't know what year exactly that all flipped in talking with my parents even. We don't know what age I went from being afraid of everything to essentially being afraid of nothing. Uh, both are very dangerous. You don't want to be afraid of everything and you don't want to be afraid of nothing. Uh, but when I was growing up, one of my biggest fears had to do with making friends. And it had to do with birthday parties specifically. Nowadays, as my friends are all starting to have children and host these birthday parties, I know the conversations they're having. The worries that they have, is the house clean enough? Did we buy enough food? Uh, did someone get left off the invite list? Like, what, what's going on with the birthday party? The kid doesn't care at all. The kid only has one concern, and this was one of my biggest fears. How many friends can I have at the party? I'll never forget, the last big birthday party that I had, I was 10 years old. No, that's not because my parents hate me. Um, I was 10 years old, and we actually hosted it at the old church building. The old church building had a uh, you know, sanctuary that was kind of funky-shaped, but there were all kinds of nooks and crannies and crevices that you could sneak off into and play games. We played Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on the big screen. And then we had a cotton candy machine, and we had a popcorn machine. I mean, when you get invited to a 10-year-old birthday party at a church, you got to do it up a little bit, right? So I did, but I was nervous that night. I was like, I didn't care about the cleanliness of the place. I didn't care about the sleeping situation. I was like, Mom, how many people can I bring? Like, that was my number one worry as a kid. 
And that was because I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't leave anybody out, but also I could make friends in the process. That, it was a fear of mine, making friends and making sure that I had a lot of them. Over time, as you grow older, it becomes harder to make friends, at least for some of us. In January of last year, there's a journalist. Her name is Jessica Stillman. She wrote an article, and she said, or the title of the article is, The Scientific Reason It's So Hard to Make Friends as an Adult, and then in parentheses, and what to do about it. The subtitle was, Science Confirms That It's Harder to Make Friends as an Adult, But Psychology Can Offer a Few Tricks to Help. She wrote this, it's a super long article, and I'm a boring person, so I read the whole thing. And, um, and I, she actually quoted a, a Maryland psychologist, a Mar- I'm sorry, a University of Maryland sociologist. And she, here's what it had to say, or here's what she had to say. If you get the sense that it's way harder to make friends as an adult than it was when you were younger, you're on to something. The difficulty isn't that you're uncool or that you're awkward, it's that the essential building blocks of friendship are harder to come by as you grow older. Sociologists have kind of identified the ingredients that need to be in place for us to make friends organically. And they are continuous, un, or continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. As we become adults, we have less and less environments where those ingredients are at play. Adults have jobs, kids, and a collection of other responsibilities, and simply have less time available for making friends. So, If you don't have a lot of friends, or if you feel like you don't have a lot of friends, it's not because you're awkward. It's because you just have less time, and because we put up guards in our life. You, when you add in um, all the other things that, like broken trust and you know faulty relationships and things like that, that compile into that lack of time and lack of opportunity, making friends can become a really, really hard thing. Especially when we think about just a few years ago when we had government agencies literally telling us to stay six feet apart. I, uh, I got to go up to Saugatuck, Michigan about three weeks ago with my in-laws and, um, and some other family members and kids. And So here's my shameless Emmett plug. Um, that hat, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to buy that in every size until he's 18. Um, but yeah, so we got to spend time in Saugatuck, and it's a beautiful harbor town in Michigan. I had never been there. I honestly didn't even know it existed until we were there. Uh, but Saugatuck's big thing, one of their big things, is blueberry picking. And we went like the week before prime blueberry picking season. But still, Riley and my uh, mother and father-in-law, my sister-in-law, Ryan, took the, took the kids out blueberry picking while my brother-in-law went golfing. Um, but, so they, they went blueberry picking. And the, the thing about Saugatuck is that um, as we were walking through various places, like walking through coffee shops, walking through little boutique stores, all of which I really, really loved. That was my favorite <laughs> part of the trip. I noticed that the remnants of separation are still there. There's still... Social distancing stickers that are peeling at the edges, faded X's painted on bench seats where we weren't supposed to sit, and dirty arrows permanently affixed to the ground of the stores telling us which direction and up which aisle and which down the next we were supposed to go. No wonder we think that it's difficult to make friends today with all of this being thrown in our face. However, if we are to follow the Bible, and make God's word the ultimate authority in each of our lives, then we can't just throw up our hands and quit and say, oh, the world's made it too hard, so I'm just going to keep to myself and my own. 
No, we must be intentional about making faithful friendships. If we want friends who are here for us and we, for them, in thick and thick times, in the good times and in the bad, then we all need to stop sitting back, staring at the crowd, wondering, who wants to be my friend? And instead, pursue friendships, step out of our comfort zones, and seek it out. To begin making friends, many people offer advice that sounds a lot like the golden rule. You know the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. So a lot of people say, oh, just be the friend that you want to have. Some of you hear that and you're like, oh, I don't think I want the same kinds of friends as Brian, <laughs> right? So th- that sounds good, it's, it's, and it's not all bad, but it's just not entirely biblical, so we're scrapping that. We don't want to just be the friend that you want to have. We all have different wants. We all have different desires. We all have different interests in activities and things like that. So de- uh, depending on where we are in our spiritual walks even, we want to make sure that we are following what the Bible says. So instead, when we are making friends, instead of trying to seek out that kind of thing, we should look inward. We should be the friend that Jesus wants us to be. If we are being the friends that Jesus wants us to be, then our priorities will fall in line. And it doesn't matter if you love golf or hate golf, if you love boutiques or hate boutiques. You can do things together because you know that you're doing everything in Jesus' name. But being the friend Jesus wants you to be starts with a little self-evaluation. James 1.23-27 says this, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he would be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, we, what this is basically saying is we need to take action and actually do something. It's not enough to just read the word, know what we're supposed to say, and say, mm, heard it, cool, now I'm going to go live my life. No, we need to be a reflection of what's in here, of what God tells us and how God instructs us to live our lives. So we need to dig deep, and we need to seriously consider not just the reflection in the mirror, but we need to seriously consider what kind of friends are we. To begin... The first question we, I think we should ask ourselves, if I'm going to be the friend that Jesus wants me to be, is do I love people well? Do I love people well? In Proverbs 17, 17, Solomon, the wisest person other than Jesus to ever walk the earth, declares a friend loves at all times. Whoops. And a brother is born for adversity. Here Solomon touches both on family and, French, and friendship relationships. We need both. We need both. Some we are, we're given, the family. We have family obligations. I, I know that um, from recent experience, if you have a larger vehicle that can move things easily, like a truck, uh, your family's going to call you first. Before they call the moving company, two guys in a truck, they're, they're going to say, hey, Brian, you got that nice truck. Do you think you could help me move next Saturday? Yeah, so we have that family obligation um, if you need help paying for something, family's usually the first people you call. Hey, we're, we're in a tight spot. We need some help. 
You're going to call family first. If there's a tough situation, whether it's health-related, work-related, whatever, the first people that we usually call to help pray for us is our family. And that's not all bad. In fact, in one of my favorite books, To Kill a Mockingbird, it says, you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. They're stuck with you. They are blood, and they're there forever. Here's the thing. It goes on. That, we quote this phrase all the time. Maybe not with the show, but um, we quote this phrase all the time. We need to finish it, though. The full quote from the book goes like this. You, sh- you can choose your friends, but you sure can't choose your family. And they're still kin to you, no matter whether you acknowledge them or not. And it makes you look right silly when you don't. So, starting with the family relationship, if you've got a breakdown, whether it's with a parent, whether it's with a sibling, whether it's with a cousin, whether it's with aunt, uncle, whomever, you look right silly when you stop acknowledging your family that God gave you. Again, you can't choose your family. So, start by building up that relationship and showing that you can love well like Jesus does. Friends, on the other hand, you get to choose. Adele Calhoun, who's a Christian author and uh, she's done tons of speaking engagements, she says this, and she actually starts it off with another idiom. We know what, not idiot, okay? I'm an idiot. Idiom, idiom is that phrase that we talked about last week. She starts in uh, in this one phrase she wrote. Friends are not a dime a dozen. A dime a dozen, if you're thinking about it, that used to be a bargain. You used to be excited. Yeah, I can get that for a dime a dozen. Now we use it as an insult because you can't get anything for a dime for a dozen. They're not the same thing as allies. Friends are not the same thing as allies, colleagues, neighbors, relatives, or acquaintances. Friends require a degree of intentionality and self-donating love that goes beyond friendliness in supporting each other in the same act or enterprise. Friends mutually and naturally support sharing, counsel, fun, encouragement, growth, and a sense of being uniquely chosen and valued. Here we see a divide between friendship and friendliness. As Christians, we should be friendly to everyone we see, no matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter if you just got out of the car after an hour and a half of sitting in traffic. You should treat the person at the gas station with the same politeness and friendliness that you do everyone else, according to God's word. You remember like this guy named Jesus in the Bible? I, I can't come up with a time that he was grumpy after something went wrong. The closest he came was in the boat when the storm went off and they came to wake him up. And I can imagine that he was probably like, really? Uh, but that's, that's about as grumpy as Jesus gets. He sets a perfect model for us. So if we are choosing friends and making friendships, we have also chosen to love people. We have also chosen to change the natural people that we might assume ourselves to be. Speaking specifically to love, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the go-to wedding passages. Some of you may have been at a wedding even recently, and you hear, and now, a reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Love is patient, love is kind. Yeah. The problem with reserving this for weddings is that it has nothing to do with the actual ceremony. What I mean is that it's not required to be read at every wedding, and it doesn't speak specifically to couples entering marital bliss at all. If you actually look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it addresses the spiritual gifts that individuals have. One body, many members. In chapter 13, Paul hopes to drown out 
the Corinthians' high level of competition that they have with one another. The Corinthians are wondering whose spiritual gifts are greater and more important and better than the others in order to establish some hierarchy, some positions of superiority. But Paul follows up uh, their intentions and questions with chapter 13, telling them that they need to focus on loving one another, loving their friends well. Let's check out how Paul starts. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. As I read the rest, there's three more slides that I've got for you. Okay, because I'm going to keep going. As I do, I want you to seriously consider the words that come out. Is this how I love people? Is this how I love my family? Is this how I love my friends? I want you to think about that question. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will, fa- they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect ones, the partial, will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is saying that not only should the Corinthian church love each other, but they should love everyone. They should make friends and keep them by loving well because we're all ultimately the children of God. The Corinthians are wondering whose gifts are more important or considered more spiritual. Paul is trying to tell them that all their gifts are equally important. And in exercising their gifts, they should make sure that they're doing so with love seeping through every action that they take, every word that they speak, and every thought that they have. During his time on earth, people lined up to be near Jesus. Were some of them interested in seeing miracles? Yes. Others anxious to catch him in a contradiction? Sure, we have record of that. But I would speculate that during his ministry, those who followed Jesus desperately wanted to be his friend. Why did they want to be his friend? Because of the way that he exhibited godly love to people in all walks of life. Jesus loved fishermen just as much as he loved tax collectors. He loved adults just as much as children and criminals just as much as cowards. He loved everyone equally, knowing that one day he'd hang on a cross for each and every one of them. That's a perfect encapsulation of loving people well. Another question that each of us needs to ask ourselves is, if I'm to be the friend that Jesus wants me to be, do I lift people up? I've got many people in my life who are very, very positive, encouraging, glass-half-full people who lift me up. 
I've also got people who send me words of encouragement at seemingly the perfect moment. Even, you know, unprompted, unwarranted, unasked for, I just get these, these texts from time to time, or I'll get um, a letter. Uh, I actually got a letter from someone uh, talking about a message that I spoke two years ago, um, only recently, and it was really, really meaningful. Um, so again, we, we can look for those kinds of friendships, the friendships that only make us feel good, that only, only boost us up. But lifting people up is not just about staying positive and staying warm. Feel-good friendships are great, but they don't dig deep. Lifting people up also includes sharpening people. We need people who challenge us, people who push us forward towards godly living. That's how you lift people up, lifting them up towards Jesus, not just lifting them up to make them feel good for five minutes. Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Do we have any blacksmiths at Southfield? Ah, I didn't think so. When I think of blacksmiths, one of the first people that I think about uh, is Will Turner in Pirates of the Caribbean. He works over at John Brown's blacksmith shop. And, you know, you get the whole scene throughout the whole thing. That is a really, really cool scene. Uh, I would love to see if Orlando Bloom could actually make a sword. I doubt it. But, uh, yeah, I, I think of that. The other thing I think of is one of my favorite shows. It's on History Channel. It's called Forged in Fire. And I love this show. I geek out. Whereas my family, they watch all the cooking shows. I like stuff like this, where they, they'll issue a challenge and say, all right, uh, today, contestants, you are going to make a, you know, a medieval sword, and it has to meet these specs, and we've got to be able to uh, see if it actually can cut through a hog. Like, it's crazy stuff. If you've never seen it, check it out. It's on, it's on YouTube. Uh, maybe not the hog one if you don't like bacon. Uh, but Forged in Fire is a really, really cool show. The thing about this, this show is that any little thing can go wrong. If you have the heat too hot as you're melting the metal, or if you bang too hard when you're actually forming everything, and I'm using all the technical terms here, okay? Uh, or even at the end, you see the guy on the, um, I guess, over here on the right side, if, or once you're done actually forging your, your weapon or whatever you're making, you have to dip it in oil. And so that guy, it's not an accident. That he knew that was going to happen. That's why he's got a big glove on. He's got the tongs that are holding his, his thing together. Because at, when it's steaming hot, when you are ready, you actually, it's called quenching. You quench your finished product in oil. And at that point, your blade or whatever you're making, it could crack. So it's, a re, it's oh, you've done all this work. And right at the end, when it's time to be quenched, when it's, time, when it's ready to be tested, you could have fractures that ruin the integrity of the work that you've put in. Um, the, the quote that that show has as they all line up and get ready to test their, their work is that if it's forged in fire, it will be tested. If it's forged in fire, it will be tested. Now, I don't suggest that you go full uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and forge friendships in fiery furnaces, but uh, your friendships are going to be tested. They are going to, go, you're going to go through tough times with friends. You're going to go through uh, times where you have doubts as to whether or not you can trust that friend. You're going to go through times where that person doesn't text you back, as all of my friends have found. It's not that I don't love them, it's that I am terrible with my phone, and I continue to make that a yearly goal, get better at my phone. But forging in fire requires work. We can help each other forge these friendships by improving our discussions, by being open to and offering love-filled criticisms, suggestions, and ideas. 
I've got a team of people that I actually get to be with tonight, and I'm super fired up uh, because Revive and Refuge both get kicked, uh, kicked off tonight. And so tonight, 6 to 8, if you are freshman through senior, Wednesday, 6th um, grade, 7th grade, and 8th grade, join us for Refuge 6 to 8 tonight, 6.30 to 8.30 on Wednesday, shameless plug. Um, I've got a team of people that I've been able to work with for a very long time. Now, we've had people come and go throughout the years, um, so I, I don't mean to leave them out, but this, there's a, been a core team that I've had for a very long time. Bob, Don, Rod, Dora, Sherry, and Stephanie have been with me through the thick and the thin. They've been lifting me up, met a couple of them, for literally the full 10 years that I've been in this ministry, and some even longer in my life. You better believe that I've tested them. You better believe that week by week, I am putting our relationship through the fire. And yet, they come out of the quench uncracked. They keep supporting me, lifting me up, boosting me. And through it all, by challenging me, they've made me not just a better leader, but a better, a, a better husband, a better father. And it's truly because of them. I can't think of times where they are detracting, where they are pulling me down, or purposely leading me astray from the goal that we all share, and that's leading students to Christ. Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't only talk about iron-on-iron friendships like that. It also warns us of people who may pull us down the wrong path. So let's go back to Proverbs for guidance. Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 12.26, The godly give good advice to their friends, the wicked lead them astray. And finally, uh, 22, 24 to 25 says, don't befriend angry people or associate with hot-tempered people or you will learn to be like them and endanger your soul. Heed these warnings about the kinds of friends that you are trying to make, but you should also take time to reflect and ask, am I angry? Am I being foolish? Am I giving bad advice or gossiping? Am I being sinful and endangering the souls of others? We need friends who lift us up. Because encouragement's good, and we don't want people to drag us down. So be the kind of person that lifts people up, but also re realize that lifting up doesn't just mean all sunshine, butterflies, and flowers. It sometimes mean criticism, means criticism and challenge. The final question that we have, if we want to be the friend that Jesus wants us to be, do I let people in? I mean this both literally and figuratively. If you keep people out, they can't become a closest a close friend. They literally can't. If you're able to, you need to let people into your personal spaces. Is Dunkin' Donuts your favorite place in the world, like it is mine? Share that with someone, not just by bringing them the most delicious coffee that the world has ever made, but literally bring them to that sacred place and enjoy spending some time together in conversation, getting to know each other. Do you have an activity that you do regularly, but you usually do it alone? Invite someone along to do it. Yeah, it can be scary to ask someone to run with you, okay? Uh, but do it. Run with them. Bike with them. Walk dogs with them. Fish with them. Golf with them. Bowl with them. Do a puzzle with them. Read or paint or even go see Barbie. I mean, watch The Chosen together. <laughs> the last one might literally require you to invite them into your home, which might currently serve as your compound or private retreat rather than a hangout pad. Stop making excuses about cleanliness or whatever else you think someone else might be worried about and invite someone over just for an hour to talk. This is an area I personally need to get a lot better in. So please know that I'm not asking to be invited over this afternoon. <laughs> it's a little self-reflection for me. 
there are people who are fantastic at this, and recently the, the people that have invited Riley and Emmett and I over the most is the Kaluznies. The Kaluznies, I don't know how they keep their schedule together, uh, but they somehow find ways to invite people over, open their home, and make dinner for us. And the dinner is always phenomenal. I'm, I'm not saying that you should go to them after service and say, hey, when can I get on the schedule? Uh, because they'd probably kill me. But if you need a biblical example of how to invite people into your home, they're one. The Yosts are another. The Yosts literally would go scavenging for couches to fill their house so that our journey groups could grow and grow and grow because inviting people in is what they know it's all about. Much of this might seem foreign to us, but it's because we've replaced the front porch with the back deck. We've swapped southern hospitality for stay out of my way or don't bother me. We've traded hey neighbor for who's that again? In our garage door up, garage door down culture, we've been conditioned to do as little interacting as possible. And the early Christian movement in Acts depended on the home to build relationships, grow the church, and spread the gospel. Acts 2, 46 and 47 says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor for all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily by those who were being saved. How did it happen? By people getting invited in. By people stepping out and saying, Come to my home. Learn about who I love, Jesus. Inviting others into their homes caused the people of the first church to be joyful, to learn about God and to come into relationship with him. So not only should we let people in literally, but we should also let them get to know the real us. It's impossible to grow deep, lasting friendship if you can't get past crazy weather today, huh? Or how about that inflation? It's like my appetite on Thanksgiving. It just never quits. Inviting people in means being open, honest, and vulnerable. And that doesn't mean that you need to lay on a couch and divulge every lasting secret that you have on day one or, you know, whatever. But it does mean that you need to stop only offering or receiving what's easy. You had me at hello, may have worked in the movies, but making friendships that last through the thick and thin require work. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I've got three questions you can ask or three things you can do to begin taking action here. First, same starting point as last week. Do you know Jesus as a friend? Have you come into a relationship with him first? If not, there's going to be someone up here at the end of the service who's ready and willing to talk with you about it and willing to pray with you. I'll be over on this side. If you have questions, come and see me. I would love to introduce you to Jesus who knows you and loves you and wants that relationship with you. You can take our three questions that we asked this week. Do I love people well? Do I lift people up? And do I let people in? Take them seriously this week and consider them. Finally, I'm going to say it again, just like I did last week. Join your journey group this fall. And I don't say that just so, you know, we can tout how big our journey groups are. No, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, if we go back to the year 2018, uh, I joined a group that, um, again, was hosted at the Yost House, and that group has carried on, you know, throughout the seasons, and they have had such an incredible impact on my life that I can't even, I can't even describe, and it wouldn't have happened had I not joined it. Back in, 20, uh, back in 2018, Riley and I had just moved into our new house, and uh, I was substitute teaching in a pretty wild situation. It was not normal. And um, I spilled gut one night about how just like I had hit my breaking point. 
I didn't know what to do in the class. I didn't know what to do with maintaining a home. I didn't know, like, we had just gotten a dog, too. Like, there, there were so many things. The drive every single day, you know, I'm driving to Shannon every, or all seven days of the week. I was overwhelmed. I was stressed out, and I spilled gut. The next morning, I walk into the class that I was teaching in, and sitting on the desk, before I even got there, there was a giant cup of Dunkin' coffee. Like, Dunk, it was a Dunkin' iced, iced coffee. And I was like, oh, man. Did, uh, did, is this like teacher appreciation day or something? Is this awesome or what? No, I, I walked over and I sat down at the desk and I saw there was a little note there. Missy Yost had run a cup of coffee over to me, that sweet caffeine. And I can't lie, the coffee was delicious. But knowing, because she also left a Bible verse there for me, knowing that I had a friend on the outside of that building praying for me, loving me and caring for me, gave me more energy than any frippa frappa mocha floca could ever do. So I mean it. Join a journey group when they open up this fall. Men's group, women's group, moms, college, uh, grandparents, basketball, basket weaving, whatever the group is. Make it a point to be there and begin building biblical friendships. Let's pray. We're thankful you've designed us for relationship, God, and we are so thankful that you offer relationship not only with you, but you give us a chance to know others. We know there can be many challenges that interrupt that friend-making process, and today we pray for your strength and wisdom in forming friendships. We need it. We need people in our lives to love us, lift us up, and let us in. Help us, too, to reciprocate the needs we have for others. Thank you for your words that we can know your truth and have proper guidance to live it out. It's all in your name we pray. Amen. We started by talking about worship as a gift that God gives to us so that we can give it back to him. Friendship is very much the same. God gives us the gift of friendship, and, and I think part of the reason a lot of us struggle with friendship is because we keep looking for the ways to spend the gift on ourselves rather than how we can take that friendship and invest in another person and, and spend that gift the way God intended. We're going to move into more time of, of singing right now, and, and we'll be doing that uh, walk into communion. first song we're singing begins with these words, He is jealous for me. Kind of odd to use those words when we're talking about friendship, right? We tell our kids, don't be jealous. You should never be jealous. And then the first words we sing, God's jealous. He's jealous for us. What in the world does that mean? He wants our love exclusively. He knows our tendency to craft our own idols, to find the thing that we choose to love, enjoy, or worship instead of him. So as you sing those first words today, he is jealous from me. You might think, God, there are certain things in my life that I've been loving more than you. Pushing those aside, my love is exclusively for you today. So we'll walk to communion at the front, to the back, gluten-free on either side of the platform. Think about those words. What amazing, perfect, beautiful bookends. I don't know if you caught that. He is jealous for me. He wants my exclusive love. There's nothing better than you. Put those two messages together. He's jealous for our hearts, and God, there is nothing in all the world I desire more than you. Thanks so much for joining us for this morning of worship. Again, like Brian said, he'll be down on this side. Diane will be down on this side to pray with you. Uh, we're hitting high school again tonight at 6 o'clock, junior high at 6.30. Have a good week. We'll see you.